Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The scariness, actually, was the fact that I'm now 45 and slap bang in the middle of having a son and mortgages and all of the overheads of your 40s, I jacked in the big, nicely paid job to do something that is really unknown. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. And if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And thank you to all of you who've left us such great reviews. We really, really appreciate it. We certainly do. It's one of the main ways we can see that what we're putting out is making a difference. And we do read everyone. So please, if you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. Now to this week's episode. This week's guest has serious grit. Katie Vanek-Smith is a media industry veteran, and for anyone who's not familiar with that industry, let's just say it's a pretty male-dominated and blokey world on the whole. And Katie spent more than 20 years in the commercial side of the industry on both sides of the Atlantic. But this isn't why we say she has grit, is it? No, no, good point. It's not. We're referring to the marathon journey Katie embarked on when she had the idea that would change the financial future of the Times newspaper in England, and indeed most other quality newspapers. Yes, Katie spent nine years, yes, you heard it right, nine years. Far out trying to persuade her bosses to introduce a paid model for their online news content. In 2010, the Times became the first newspaper globally, outside of the purely business-focused mastheads, to charge for access to their digital content. Fast forward nine years today, and that is an incredible story. Katie's attempting to make history in the media again. Last year, she left her high-powered role as president of Dow Jones, which includes the Wall Street Journal, so very serious, to join a London-based startup she co-founded with two others. It's called Tortoise, and it's changing the way news is covered. They're focused not on churning out breaking news, but on what's driving the news. In today's episode, you'll hear how Katie didn't realise her family was relatively poor until she was 14 years old, what she did over nine years to persuade her bosses at the Times newspaper to make a transformative decision for the business, how she managed to double her salary twice in three years, and how she thinks about money and failure. Wow, wow, wow. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with the determined and passionate Katie Vanek-Smith. Katie Vanek-Smith, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. 
Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, actually, I think you're having us here in London in your offices. So thanks for hosting us. No problem at all. It's exciting to be here. And one of the things that we usually do when we start these interviews is just ask you a really sometimes hard question, which is, how would you describe what you do today? Today, I am a co-founder of a entrepreneurial startup here in London called Tortoise. And I would describe myself as doing anything that needs to get done. But prior to six months ago, I would have said I was a veteran of <laughs> News Corps. You don't look like a veteran. Thanks very much. <laughs> I would have said I was a veteran of News Corps, having done over 20 years, which is more than a life sentence, in the commercial side of publishing. The difference between then and now is that I still believe that I'm working to help provide a sustainable future for journalism. So that is really what I do. Whatever country that's taken me to, whatever job I've done since 1995 has been to try and help find a future for journalism to make it sustainable. Yeah, fantastic. We're going to really delve into that journey that you've been on and and where you are today with Tortoise. But before we do that, I want to go back in time and ask you, you know, how do you remember your childhood? Oh, I remember actually being mainly as a, growing up in a single parent household, even though my dad was around until about 11. And then it was my mother. So my mother is this strong force, which, uh, you know, we all need strong forces in our life. And my mother brought up myself and my brother. My brother's autistic. And I remember having this sort of life that was, I never knew I was poor, which is kind of unusual really because you're going to make me feel emotional in the first five minutes I can tell Amazing. I, I never talk about my childhood but interestingly my childhood wasn't that simple so my mother then decided she was going to send me to a catholic school uh, I was taught by nuns I wasn't a catholic and at the age of seven they found out I wasn't a catholic because they were like you're going to do your first holy communion I was like what is that they said well you know how you go to church every Sunday I said I don't go to church and they were like um Okay. Mum was summoned to school and I got baptized and it was 1982 and John Paul II was coming to the UK. So we got to be sort of held up as the new converts to Catholicism. So I remember that. But also I remember in my childhood that sort of idea of never really fitting in, but belonging, which is a sort of an interesting thing, which is I also found out at seven that I had two sisters and that my father had been married before. Gosh. So my childhood is sort of this staccato of finding out things about myself that I didn't really know until after the fact. So we didn't know we were the second family. He then went on to have more. We didn't know that we weren't Catholic. We thought we were because we were taught by nuns. Otherwise, why would you have been taught by nuns? And then I didn't know I was poor. And I only found out that we sort of lived in a council house when I was 14 years of age. Yes, I know you're going to be surprised. You're going to think, you're going to think I was a bit backward. And it was because money wasn't really a thing in our household. And because I'd always been to schools where the church actually had paid for me to go to school for three till 11. But I didn't know. That's why they were so upset we weren't Catholics. From 11 to 18, I was on a scholarship to a private school about 45 minutes away. It was only when I was 14 and I wanted to go on the ski trip with all the other children that my mum pointed out that actually what hadn't I realized about the fact that we were living in a council estate and we didn't have a lot of money and she wasn't a working mother. She was a single parent and what had passed me by. So I had this sort of slightly odd childhood that was sort of idyllic in one hand with lots of weird things that happened. Gosh, that's amazing. And how do you think that that childhood impacted 
than where you went in your career? Oh, good question. I mean, I'm pretty resilient, but I'm also quite good at sort of thinking about how to make things happen that don't seem obvious. So I think in my career, I didn't really know I wanted to be in journalism or sort of in the commercial side of journalism. I actually wanted to go into educational fundraising. After university, I went and lived in Japan. And when I was living in Japan, Tony Blair got in. And in his first term of government, he got rid of the assisted places scheme, which is what I was the beneficiary of. So that means that you can have as a parent or parents, if your child passed a the 11 plus, you had a means tested top up by the government to go to any school. Right. So I went to a private school that because of my mum's situation and our situation, all of my fees were paid, but all of my clothes were paid, all of my train fare, lunches, everything. It's like a really big and brilliant way for people to create social mobility. So because it had got rid of it, the government, I was like, right, I'm fired up. I'm going to come back. I'm going to work in educational fundraising. That's what I want to do. I want people from my background to be able to have the same access to education and learning. And it's changed my life. I ended up at Oxford. It was amazing. I went and had 20-something job interviews with charities and in the charity sector for fundraising. And everyone offered me a job, but they offered me a job unpaid. Right. To which I said, I can't really afford to do that. Yes. So one lovely woman took me aside and said, okay, let's give you some advice. Go get a job in sales and marketing, right? Go get the experience and then come back. And when you've got the experience, you'll be able to get a job because you'll be coming in at an experience level. So that's what I did. Here you are, you were looking for educational fundraising roles and someone advised you to go and get a, a normal job, if you like, in sales and marketing. And you ended up in media at the Times, is that right? Yeah. It was the Times. How did you find media? Because I worked in the media back in the 90s, and it was a pretty blokey world. What were your impressions in that first early stage? Really blokey, absolutely, and sort of inappropriately blokey. So we can talk about blokey and, and appropriate yeah. blokey, but it yeah. was inappropriately blokey. But it never affected me in the sense that if I was ever on the receiving end of it, I would always call it out quite early on from the lunging in the lift to the just behaviors in boardrooms to calling it out to HR if someone had said, oh, well, little girl, you, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. You know, so I experienced a lot of the stuff that I think many women of our generation did, particularly in media. But on the other side, I mean, it is the most amazing industry to be part of and the privilege of working at the Times you know, actually the job I went in to do was at, they, they gave me advertising sales. I did two days and went to see this lady called Leslie Webb. She's an amazing woman who ran the HR department at the time for training. And the thing that was amazing about her is she understood the human in everyone. So when I went to see her and said, you know, thanks for this job you've given me. It's terrible. I hate it. And you're making me sell advertising, cold calling for courier and distribution companies to take an ad in a report not sure this is for me. She said, oh, you're a history graduate, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you know, and she'd done her research on me. And she said, why don't you go and spend a day in the archives? I was like, okay, I'll go spend a day in the archives. Totally better than selling advertising at the time. And this lovely man took me into the archives and the Times has been published since 1785. And it has all of its archive going back to 1785. They showed me all this amazing stuff like 
how the times was there during history. So you see all the people that make it up to the top of Everest. So Tenzing and Edmund Hillary, but there's obviously a photographer there and the photographer was the Times photographer. So he had also made it up to the mountain, but wasn't in any of the stories, including the opening of the Tutankhamun's tomb. The Times photographer died as well of the mystery illness that Carnarvon and the others who went into the tomb. How amazing. It's amazing. It sounds like they really tapped into your values and purpose and you know that storytelling piece was amazing just that day that is the reason that I stayed doing what I do and I think it was that day and then as I left Eamon said well you do realize that the times doesn't make money and you know the times have been published since 1785 we're in the mid 1990s and it's never made a penny And the reason that I stayed in journalism and the reason I love what I do is because finding ways to make money for brands like the Times that I think have a purpose in not just, you know, our lives as consumers in terms of informing, entertaining and educating us, but they have a huge role to play in society and in healthy democracies that we need to find a way to make them profitable because... You can't always rely on the largesse and philanthropy of others. And I'd love to segue there because what you ended up doing over the the decades that you spent at News Corp and at the Times was really pioneering, it seems to me, from what I've read, pioneering the whole <laughs> getting a consumer to pay to read a news story, you know, the whole digital paywall as the enormous disruption of traditional media newspaper organizations occurred when you know, the internet really arrived in force. How hard was that? So actually the act of asking people to pay for things they value is not very hard. Transpires, the act of selling into an organization is extremely hard. Uh (laughs) So I first ran digital in the year 2000 and I was the digital director of the Times and Sunday Times. I had actually just come back from traveling around India. It was the editor of the Times at the time, a gentleman called Peter Stottart who called me up and said, there's this thing called the internet and we need somebody to run it. And I said, oh, I know nothing about the internet, Peter. He said, but you're young. So um, I got this great job and I came in and I was super excited. And I was quite surprised by how much money we were spending, even then in 2000. I was quite surprised by what I would call the Wild West behavior of sort of, oh, build it and they'll come and it's all going to be great. And none of it really sort of resonated well with me. None of it sat well. None of it felt real. It felt sort of, even then, quite emperor's new clothes. Yeah. And that that era also was the sort of the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, the dot-com hype oh. until about, I think, 2001, for memory, the dot-com yeah. crash. But yeah, there wasn't such a thing almost as a worry about a business model. But I was worrying. Great. Um, <laughs> because I was looking at the numbers yeah. and I could see that the advertising yield had dropped from £45 per thousand to £35 per thousand with Within 12 months. And so then I just did some basic maths and ran it forward and went, okay, this doesn't look great. And I can't see a point at which the scale that we'll need with the cost base that we have. And I I just basically did some maths and it just didn't add up. So I remember in 2001 presenting to my boss that I wanted to charge for access to the Times. And I was laughed out of the room. My boss at the time subsequently became a great friend. And he just laughed at me. Subsequently, I've realized that most of the people running the media at that time commercially were from ad sales. 
So you believed your own story, right? Which is, if I build more, more will come, the ad dollars will flow, all this sort of stuff. What happened was that every year at budget for the next seven years, I would present, should we charge for a digital access? So I'd start with the, look at what's happening to our newspaper sales. And this is how many of them are being impacted by the free internet option we have. And, you know, I'd do all of this and yes, Katie, move on, you know, and every year and every year. And then in 2007, James Murdoch joined and James had come from Sky and obviously knew the value of a subscription model, was very sort of brilliant at changing and growing Sky in, in the UK into the success it is today. And two things happened. The first was he underestimated perhaps my resilience to certain things, which he said out of his mouth came, I really want to put marketing at the top table and I'm looking for a CMO to join the board. Super excited. By this time, I'm marketing director of the Times and Sunday Times. I'm like, this is my opportunity to get on the top table. And he said, and I think what we need to do is go out and find a world-class marketeer. <gasps> oh, same breath. That was a moment. And I remember leaving his office and saying, this meeting's over. And walking down the hall to my boss, who was the same gentleman who'd been my boss in 2000 when he told me I was bonkers, Paul Hayes. And Paul said to me, I've already had the call. James says that he's upset you. And I was like, of course he's upset me. I mean, he doesn't even know me like this. And Paul said, what is the one thing that you want to be able to present to James that will change his opinion on you? And I said, I want to present. And he went, don't tell me. A paywall for the Times and Sunday Times. I said, yes, that is what I want to present. So I got to do it again in the 2008-9 budget submission. And James bought it. And in 2010, the Times was the first newspaper globally outside of the business papers that then charged for access to our digital content. We made loads of mistakes. We made it too cheap. We made it, you know, we made loads of mistakes as you classically would make. But that was a really important lesson for me, which is, you know, if you believe in something passionately, you know, you should never give up on it. And, you know, whilst I annoyed a lot of people and became a bit like a stuck record within the company, every year you'd go back with a new set of arguments as to why new data, like literally no doesn't mean no, it just means you haven't got the right answer yet. But did you ever second guess yourself? I mean, there you were, it seems like a bit of a voice in the wilderness. There must have been times where you thought, well, maybe I am wrong and they're all right. Oh, 100%. But every time I thought that, the the data or something else would happen that you'd sort of go, oh, look, there's another thing that I can argue this way. And it was lonely. You had, I mean, even when we did it, you know, like now it's seen as kind of the model for most quality news brands and is sort of given. And actually everyone now says it's the number one thing they look to as their revenue growth area if you're in journalism and, and pay for media. But in 2010, when we did it, we were told we were going to obliterate the times and wipe it off the planet. And everyone sort of was said they're mad. And in the business, you just knew that everyone wanted you to fail. So there were a lot of people that wanted it to fail. And that is tough, tough in a number of ways, which is, you know, your neck's out on the block. And if it hadn't worked... I probably wouldn't have had a job, but it did work and it made the times profitable and it made the times profitable in 2013 and the times are still profitable. So it was hard, but it wasn't, if you're passionate about having a purpose and a mission, which is to drive sustainable future of journalism and all the paths lead back to certain answers, you just keep fighting for the same thing. 
I mean, I, I might be just stupid, I'm sorry, <laughs> but it sort of worked out okay. Yeah, well, it, it seems to have worked out. So, you know, you, you've really managed to deliver on your mission that you had all those years. That makes me think of a story I think I read where you were given advice by one of your bosses at the time to either be patient or leave. Oh, yeah, that was Paul again. And so you left. I left. What's yeah. that story? I was bored. Um, boredom plays a lot in my life in terms of driving to the next thing. I wanted to learn more. I didn't feel I was learning. So I went to my actual direct line manager and asked to do different things in marketing. I was like, look, I do this, but I'd really like to understand subscription marketing or brand marketing. Do you think I could maybe take that into my remit? No, I've got someone on that and I like to oversee that. So I was like, okay, well, that's not a satisfactory answer. So what, what next? Well, go and see my boss. So, so I go and see Paul. Paul says to me, well, look, Katie, the thing about you is you're not very patient. And you either need to learn patience and toe and do your dues and do your time or go get another job. So I was like, okay. At the time, the Barclay brothers had just bought the uh, Telegraph in the UK. And there was a new chief exec in there. He'd been in about a month. And I just called him. I found his number, called him and said, oh, hi, Murdoch. Not Rupert Murdoch. I've only ever worked for people called Mur Murdoch <laughs> until now. So sorry. Murdoch McLennan was chief exec of the Telegraph. I said, oh, you, you might be looking for a marketing lead. I understand you're in and you're making a lot of changes. He said, I am actually. Should we meet for breakfast? So we met at the Ritz, which was owned by the Barclay Brothers. And we had breakfast the next morning. And he offered me a job over breakfast. I negotiated over breakfast. We shook hands on it. He sent me a, an email. And I went back within 24 hours of my chat and resigned. And I doubled my salary. And then two years later, when I went back to news, I doubled my salary again. So it was the single best move I ever did because it was the thing that I'm really bad at negotiating for pay rises, like many women I know have always been historically. So I suppose that was my way of getting a pay rise. I left yeah. and then I came back and I doubled it on both ways in and out. Yeah, it's, it's often a really good strategy though, isn't it? Well, it works if you're uncomfortable in the situation of asking for money. I'm not uncomfortable now. Now I've done those moves. Yeah. That gave me the confidence to ask. But I never asked for a pay rise. I didn't, I sort of expect that if you do a good job, you get rewarded. Yeah, that's a very female thing, I think. Yeah, I'm working really hard. You can see what I'm doing. Pay me more. But the negotiation going out and coming in taught me that don't expect that either people know what you're doing because sometimes actually the people making decisions don't know what you're doing at the front line. But to also, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, it really is like your mum said to you, you don't ask, you don't get. And what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no. Yeah, that's But then it. they've got to tell you why they've said no. Yeah. And that's just the beginning of a yes. So you're part of a team now, you're co-founder of a new venture called Tortoise. And what's striking is, you know, you're all media insiders actually now, if I interpret it correctly, trying to disrupt the industry. Is that right? And tell us about the whole ethos behind Tortoise. So I, I don't think of Tortoise as a disruptor. I think of us as a constructive solution. And rather than it be an attack on an industry that I love, I see it as a fix to some of the problems of our age that I think are more the things that we feel as consumers. So Tortoise, sort of myself, James and Matthew, who are the three co-founders, we really believe that we're a fix for two things, which is that news has become noise and there's a widening power gap. And actually in news has become noise, you know, the cultures of news have meant that we have disrupted ourselves as much as been disrupted. So in news, the three golden rules are be first, 
keep it a secret, keep it close, and only worry about the output of your journalism. So you kind of, you need to be first. So speed matters, the scoop matters, your sources matter, but they keep them secret. And you want to, once you've delivered your output, your job is done. And then it's up to others to take your journalism and do things with it. At Tortoise, we believe that that actually is wrong. And actually, our little motto is slow down, wise up. If news has become noise and people feel anxiety with the nature of the endless white noise or the sort of constant feed and you know all of that stuff that's balanced by the fact that actually in the UK at least in the last year demand for news has grown by 22% so people do want to understand what is happening people are looking for trusted sources they're just not finding them so we're purposefully slow so we don't do breaking news we only do what's driving the news and that news when it's ready. We're purposefully open. So we don't believe in keeping things secret and behind closed doors. We're open in that we tell you what we're working on. We don't mind if you try and scoop us because we're taking a long time to look at the same things and we're doing it in a different way. We're open because we're built with and for our members. So our members are actually part of our journalistic process. They come every day to our newsroom. They'll be upstairs actually shortly. And then we we actually care about the outcomes, not the output. And I think all of us came at it from slightly different places. I mean, James was at the BBC at the time. He was creating four seconds of news for every one second of the day. What? Mental. (laughs) That is mental. I was at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. I was president there. And, you know, I'd gone in to double the membership numbers and we'd done that. And, you know, we'd turned around the B2B business and got it into double digit growth and advertising was flat, which is obviously the new up in yeah. the world of yeah. Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so it sort of felt like there was an end of a chapter. We feel like we're part of a movement. There are others doing what we're doing, not quite in the same way, but the slow news movement is building. There's a company in the Netherlands called De Correspondent. There's a company in Copenhagen called Zetland. The Correspondent's launching in the US in April. There's a movement for slower journalism. Yeah. The thing that's different about us is that we're open as well. And the membership model is the thing that really matters to me personally, because it flows through into the culture of how James and I work and how the whole of Tortoise works, which is we're partners and we're genuine partners. Well, it sounds like, again, you're driving something that comes back to the purpose that you started with, which is around making better journalism. You know, you were the president of Dow Jones, right, in New York. Mm-hmm. So you got your big CEO job. CEO in waiting, probably. CEO in waiting, okay. <laughs> there was a CEO. Yeah. But that's a pretty powerful, powerful role. Yeah. You know, I hear in, in what you're saying about your purpose that that's really important, but still it's a really big deal or it feels to me like it would be a big deal to put a pause on President Dow Jones and come to build a startup. How did that feel? And how did you make the decision? So it felt scary and liberating in equal measure. I thought from a scary point of view, I never thought I would put myself in a position that I didn't know potentially where the next paycheck would come from. In my 20s, I was just kind of figuring out what I was good at. What could I do? I didn't really know I was going to be good at what I did probably still think I'm not necessarily sure about that. But I said, what am I good at? And in my 30s, I really, it's when I moved to the Telegraph and I did my sort of don't be patient. You know, it was my first marketing director role. And I thought, oh, I need a bit of a network. I need to actually know some people. So I spent my 30s building a network and sort of 
kind of getting out and taking every opportunity to meet new people and connect and sort of see outside of my little world that was quite a big world, but still a small world. And then I'd sort of said, oh, my 40s will be about paying off my mortgage. I'm in my 40s now. And in my 50s, I'll go and do what I always wanted to do because by then I'll have paid off my mortgage and it won't really matter and I can take some choices. And so the scariness actually was the fact that I'm now 45 and slap bang in the middle of having a son and mortgages and all of the overheads of your 40s, I jacked in the big, nicely paid job to do something that is really unknown. So that was the scary bit. The other scary bit was also the fact that I was like, will I be any good at it? Can I actually, I mean, I've been in a big company where in my office, I had four people in the office of the president who basically ran my life and I hadn't had to change a photocopier toner for like years. I didn't even know what a photocopier toner was actually, if I'm really honest, because I'd never even done any printing. And I was like, oh my God, am I just going to be able to do it? Can I do this stuff? So that was also scary. I haven't had the scaremongering worry yet about failure because I don't believe in failure. It's just not in my mindset. I don't ever believe you can fail. I believe that things go wrong and you learn from it and then you do the next thing, but it's never failure. So I'm sort of like, I can't fail at this. I can only learn a bunch of stuff I don't really know. So the exciting bit is that, like I said, I'm working with amazing people. There's 40 of us now in Team Tortoise and there's no arseholes. You know, you just like that rule never work with an arsehole. Wherever you are, there's always an arsehole. Yeah. And I'm very pleased to say we haven't got any because we're building it in a slightly different spirit. One thing I'm quite curious about is your relationship with money. Because, you know, having heard about your childhood, how do you think about money? So as a means to an end and as a thing to enjoy in life headline. The reason that I never thought I'd do a startup is I was worried about pay packets. Now I'm sort of like, okay, I know what I need and I know how to live. And I've saved a lot from nice jobs before. I know how much I got in the bank. I know I can do it for three years. doesn't work. I think I'm young enough to go and get a CEO gig, she says, and to have an, you know, have another go in me. So, and, and actually money doesn't really matter as long as you can pay the bills. Yeah. I'm just intrigued. Sometimes your relationship with money impacts, you know, whether you're prepared to take the risk of going to do something entrepreneurial or not. Yeah. I mean, it was always in my head as the fear of, you know, there was the reason I told myself I would never do a startup, right? Which was like, oh, the money. I mean, I obviously can't do it because of the money. And then you get to a point, well, I got to a point, which was not a point I ever thought I'd get to, by the way, because it was completely ridiculous that I was earning a lot of money right? And it didn't make me any happier. It doesn't, money doesn't, everyone knows that it's true. It made my life luxurious. It made it easy. It meant I could treat my friends and family and throw massive parties. And I'm quite known for my parties. Good to know. Yeah. I've just (laughs) scaled them back now and do them in my house rather than in glamorous places. But you know, as long as I can provide for my family and that's my immediate family and my extended family, then it doesn't really matter. And it's also the other thing I know is I know I can always make ends meet, which is the sort of thing that you always fall back on, which is if the worst comes to the worst, yeah. can I find a way to get through it? Yes, I can. What would your <laughs> most powerful advice be to women listening to this, wondering what's next for them, be that an entrepreneurial path or continuing to climb and sometimes resist being the only one with a certain opinion about what's the right strategy forward. What's your kind of number one piece of advice for younger women? 
So ultimately, for me, it's all about where do you get your joy from? Now, that sounds really luxurious, and it sounds like a real luxury to be able to say that you should do something that brings you joy. But I think when I look back at my career, the the moments where I've changed or done something different is where I know that in spite of doing a good job, in spite of delivering the results or earning more money or whatever it might be, I didn't feel the joy anymore. There wasn't, I didn't come into work and feel like I was fighting a fight that I believed in. So do what you believe in and have a passion for what you do. So what advice would you give your 30 year old self if you could go back in time? Mm. So at 30, I was quite Marmite, which is the what UK, the UK equivalent of Vegemite. Yeah. What does and that mean for our American love, hate, right? <laughs> so the thing, the drive we've talked about, the passion that I have, the resilience, the constant sort of demand to never take no as the answer, but just the starting point, it meant that as many people loved me as hated me. And in my twenties, probably through to my, my early 30s. So at 30 was when I sort of started to realize that what drove me drove others to distraction and often reaction and sort of rejection. And I think that the advice I would give myself then, and it's something I tell myself regularly, which is you have to get to know the person that you're dealing with when you're trying to do things differently. So as much as I would argue through data and, you know, I think that's what we talked about and I'd be relentless on, on sort of missions to do things, you know, understanding why the other person was saying no and putting myself in their shoes. And often it would be an ad director who would try and block what I was doing because they didn't want advertising to be impacted rightly. And then trying to frame everything from their argument as well. And so just being a little less bullish and a little more collaborative in still being resilient and having that stuff. So my 30-year-old self would have been told by the 45-year-old me, stop being Marmite, be a twiglet, which is the snack in the UK that has got Marmite covering on it. But even if you don't like Marmite, it's bearable and you can eat it. So (laughs) don't change yourself. Don't change the ingredients of who you are, but literally make yourself a bit more palatable and tone them down a bit. Tone it down a bit and just listen harder to know what people are saying, but the signals that they're giving you, which is often more of an indicator of why they're saying no and why you might be having because as you can tell, my career's had quite a lot of conflict in it to kind of, to change outcomes. And I think in the early days, I probably created a lot of that conflict myself just by being so bloody minded. Well, great advice to yourself. (laughs) Stop being so bloody minded. Yeah. Do you have a motto in life? I do. I have many mottos, by the way, but my main motto transpires that apparently it's something Amazon's day, which is work hard, have fun, make history. I've been saying it for 20 years. So it's obviously a spirit. Uh, I should have been an entrepreneur before now. But yeah, work hard, have fun, make history is my overwhelming motto that I try to build teams with and businesses by and live by. And then along the way, there are helpful ones. Like if you're a marketeer, make friends with finance and get married to tech. If you're <laughs> just starting out, you know, seek forgiveness, not permission. And like they roll off because I'm a marketeer, right? Yeah. That work, work hard, have fun, make history really sounds like it sums you up. It does. But the making history bit 
is the thing that ultimately I think matters because if you're lucky enough, like I've been, to find something you really care about, why would you just turn up to work every day? Absolutely. For sure. Well, Katie, that is a brilliant note to end on. How can our listeners find out more about you or more about Tortoise? Well, like all good businesses these days, we have a website. So tortoisemedia.com is our homepage. For those listeners who aren't in the UK, which I imagine many of your team are across the world, one in four of our members are outside the UK, but our thinking, which is held in our home here, is available is a live stream and an audio stream as well. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can still be part of Tortoise. Well, Katie, thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating discovery. And from the point of view of the role of journalism in preserving healthy societies, I hope that you make history. And so all the very best for both of us with Tortoise. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. I love how Katie is truly her own person. You know, how much resilience must it have taken during those nine years trying to persuade her bosses they needed to change the business model and charge for online access? I know, it was an incredibly long time. And what a great example of someone believing in something so passionately they just won't give up. And she was proved right. Sure was. Katie's approach to failure also really resonated with me. You know, she says there's no such thing as failure. And I think her words were something like, I believe that things go wrong and you learn from it and then you do the next thing, but it's never failure. And that is such a great way of framing things. Oh, yeah, it really is. And actually, you know, I've signed up to Tortoise and I absolutely love it. I, I don't think she's going to fail, to be honest. And if she does, she's going to be learning. Exactly. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy hearing Katie's story and lessons through her career? Then why not share this episode with them now? Stay tuned for next week when we interview Mia Friedman, who at just 24 became the youngest ever editor of Cosmopolitan magazine anywhere in the world. She's gone on from that stellar start to become an entrepreneur, author, celebrity, and passionate women's advocate. Yes, we're super excited to share this one with you in two weeks' time. See you then. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.